going to Sunrise. Glad to have you with us. Um, I'm very excited this morning uh, because we have a, a special guest, uh, Kim and Brent Wendell. And I'm happy to introduce them, thrilled really introduce them to you here. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. Um, they hail from Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is uh, in the United States. They both attended the University of Illinois, also in the United States, uh, though not at the same time. Um, they just kind of maybe crossed paths while there, but not knowing it. Thankfully, they both attended the same seminary, because that's where they met and fell in love and heard wedding bells and that sort of thing. So he has, since that time, since graduating with his Master's in Divinity, he has been faithfully serving and working at a secular job at a pasta company in uh, Illinois, which is pretty awesome because should he come down here to Cayman, he would also be called pasta uh, here in Cayman, which I'm frequently called, usually weekly, at pasta. In fact, one of my good friends would be, yeah, penne pasta, you know what I'm talking about, pilo. All right, so that's kind of like a neat match, so that's pretty sweet. But we're grateful. While he's been working at a pasta company, uh, he's also been faithfully serving in his local church for six years at Crossway Church in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and serving, just working with youth and, and leading um, young adult ministries, leading community groups, all the while serving there as a pastoral intern uh, at this church, which is really great about wanting to build up people who feel like they're called to the ministry. And so Brett has sort of been waiting for God's call, really, on, on their life to, to, to be a pastor. In the meantime, also... They had a son born to them, Joshua, uh, last October, their first boy, and uh, a number of you folks have gotten to meet him, um, but this morning you're going to get to hear him preach, which I'm very grateful for. He, he's a guy who uh, loves the Lord, loves people, uh, real tender heart, got a lot of wisdom, breadth of knowledge, and, and just a really good communicator as well, so I'm really grateful you're going to hear him this morning. It's, it's an awesome thing. So this morning, we get an examination and challenge from a guest uh, preacher this morning, who is also an uh, associate pastor candidate for us. So um, I'm pleased to welcome, if you give him a big hand, Brett Wendell up here. Brett? Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. Well, if you, if you do have your Bible, uh, turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in those uh, cloth seat coverings, and the, the page number for those Bibles is 878. This is God's Word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
Well, I, I do hope that at some point this morning you get to see my son Joshua, who will probably be crying when you see him. He's been having kind of a hard travel weekend. Uh, but one of the most common questions we get about Joshua when we introduce him to people, um, we've gotten this question over the weekend while we've been here, is who does he look like? Who does he look like? And we get this question so often that we have a kind of stock answer, which is, well, kind of by the shape of his head, he looks like my baby pictures, but his eyes are Kim's, his mouth is Kim's, his nose is mine, the little space between his first and second toe is mine. And, and beyond physicality, we hope that and, and trust that as he grows, he's going to look like us in other ways. So uh, maybe when he's older, he's going to prefer sandals to shoes like his dad, or maybe he's going to eat his hot dogs by tearing them in pieces and dipping them in ketchup like his mom. Or maybe he'll, he'll share my love for the original Star Wars trilogy or my appreciation for the musical genius of Bruce Springsteen. Or maybe, maybe like his mom, he will be an unashamed lover of American country music. But yeah, there it is. That's, the woo is for her. The woo is not for me. Um, but so even though Joshua is going to be his own person, he's going he's to be a Wendell through and through. He's going to share the family resemblance. Um, and we heard in last week's sermon, in the text from last week, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, that Christians, believers in Jesus, are God's children. John says, See what great love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So this is one of the most beautiful and meaningful ways to describe a Christian. Uh, One great writer, J.I. Packer, asks in his book, Knowing God, what is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as his father. And, And John, the Apostle John who wrote this letter, he celebrates. He celebrates that sinful human beings can be called children of God. It it amazes him that God would have that kind of love for him. But he's concerned for these, these believers to whom he's writing that everyone in the church know that they have assurance that they themselves are a child of God. Because this church had been troubled. There had been teachers within the church who had come from within the church, who had gone out from the church, and they were teaching things that weren't true about Jesus, things that weren't true about salvation. And, and these people who had gone out had been the friends and the neighbors, the the Christian brothers and sisters of the people in the church, and the church was really confused by this. So, they, you know, they're, they're wondering, like, I thought I knew what salvation meant, but then what they said didn't jive with what I thought. And, and having left, are they Christians? And, and I really thought that they were, so if I can't be sure about them, can I be sure about me? How can I know that my salvation is real? And so John wrote this letter to assure them. He didn't write this. I mean, you hear that passage, and he starts talking about children of the devil, and you might think, man, John is just trying, like he's trying to unsettle everybody. And that's not what John's after. He wants every Christian to be assured that they are God's child. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The way, the way John does it, as, as Ryan said, is by sort of alternating in the book between kind of shaking people up to really examine themselves and then by pointing them back to Jesus and trust in him. And so in this passage about how to know that we're children of God, um, John points us to the family resemblance of God's family. So just as, just as Joshua will be seen to be a Wendell by his facial features, by his musical tastes, 
there's a family resemblance to God's family. So in a nutshell, the message of this passage of Scripture is the children of God share their father's righteousness. God is righteous. He is good and kind and loving and just in all that he does. And people who come to know him, who become his children, share his righteousness. The children of God share their father's righteousness. So the sermon is going to have four moves this morning. As we go through the passage, we're going to look at what John says in this passage about sin, what he says about Jesus, what he says about those who come to know Jesus, and then finally, we're going to have an opportunity to examine ourselves to see if we share God's family resemblance. So first, we're going to look at everyone's favorite topic, sin. So first point, sin is more serious than you think. Sin is more serious than you think. Take a look at verse 4 in your Bible. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is not a very popular word in America, where where we come from. I'm not sure about Cayman. I would guess probably not here as well. And and when it is used, it's normally used in a way totally foreign to the Bible. Um, So sin in America is usually reserved either for like really rich desserts like sinful chocolate cake, or it's reserved for trips to Las Vegas, which Americans call Sin City. And from that, I think by sin, they basically just mean something naughty, sort of disapproved of, but really fun and good. Um, but that's not what the Bible means. Um, and there are other, lots of other wrong definitions of sin that people use today. Um, for some people, it's sin is whatever hurts somebody else. So if you if you do physical harm to somebody, if you infringe upon their freedoms and their rights, that's sin. Or sin is sort of failing to live out your dreams. Uh, Kim and I recently saw the movie Silver Linings Playbook, and there's a scene in there where Robert De Niro is saying to his son, he says, let me tell you, I know you don't want to listen to your father. I didn't listen to mine, and I'm telling you, you got to pay attention this time. When life reaches out at a moment like this, it's a sin if you don't reach back. I'm telling you, it's a sin if you don't reach back. It'll haunt you the rest of your days like a curse. So sort of if you you fail to live the great life you wanted, that's what sin is. Um, Or it's just a bad habit. Like, well, yeah, I get angry at my children, but, you know, it's it's really, it's like biting your nails. It's just just a bad habit. Um, Or some people think sin is just the way I am. Of course I do that. It's not right, but that's just me. That's just the way that I am. Um, Since there are so many wrong understandings of sin, it's really important for Christians to know what God says about it. And God gives a profound definition of it in this verse. Sin is lawlessness. It's not just law-breaking, but it's lawlessness. It's having no law. It's, It's breaking out against order and restraint. So the Bible teaches that God has a perfect He he has perfect order for humanity, perfect rule for the world expressed in his law. He gives gives the guidelines to the the full, good, enjoyable life he made humanity to have. And lawlessness, sin, is just living as if there were no law, living as if there were no rules, throwing off all restraint and just doing whatever you want. Um, And so those who practice sinning, he says those who practice sin, Um, practice lawlessness. They're outlaws. They are living outside of God's law. 
And I need, to, I need to clarify one thing here really fast because some of you hear this passage and you, you hear things like everyone who makes, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawless. And, and you think, does, does he mean everyone who commits a sin? Is he saying that anyone who sins is this practicer of lawlessness, that anyone who sins is not a child of God? And that's not what John's saying. Um, John knows that Christians, even mature Christians, do sin. He says in verse 3 of the same chapter, everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. And that assumes that there are people who really know Jesus and also need to be purified. They, They still have sin. So John isn't saying only perfect people are children of God. He's talking about people who profess to be Christians and don't at all make a practice of obeying God's law. So they know what God says. They know what God says about the love of money, and they ignore it. They know what God says about sexual immorality, and they ignore it. They know what God says about gossip, and they ignore it. They don't just sin sometimes. They practice sin, and those are the people that John is concerned about. Because those people practice lawlessness. And the word lawlessness is a really, it's a serious word. It's translated sometimes wickedness. Sin is wickedness. Sin is serious. And it gets even more serious if you look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, this is probably the one that threw up your flags earlier, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So, this, if you're visiting Sunrise this morning, you might be having your worst fears about a sermon realized because basically at this point we're talking about sin and the devil, which might have been your, your disclaimer about church. Like, I will go to church with you. I am not interested in sin and the devil. So if that's what it's about, I'll sleep in. And I want to assure you, uh, we, we do believe in sin. We do believe in the devil. We don't believe either gets the last word. And so I really want you to, to, to hang in there for the rest of the sermon. Um, I want to spend a minute talking about what I don't mean and what the Bible doesn't mean by the devil. The Bible is not talking about a red person with horns, pitchfork, pointy tail, ruler of hell. That's not what the Bible is talking about. The devil, the devil does not rule hell. Okay, when, when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire, he will be as miserable there as everyone else. Hell is a punishment for the devil. It was created for him. Um, and the devil is not... He's not God's equal and opposite. There's sort of this idea sometimes that, that God is this ultimate force for good in the universe. Satan is the ultimate force for evil. And history is just them kind of going back and forth. Nobody ever gets the upper hand. And that is not what the Bible says. Satan was created. God is ultimate. And, and even Satan continues to exist only because God wills it. Uh, Martin Luther is reported to have said, even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil exists just because of God. So that's what I don't mean. What does the Bible mean when it talks about the devil? The the devil is a spirit. He was once a glorious and powerful angel in God's service, but he wasn't content to stay there and to serve and glorify God. He wanted to be served himself. He wanted to be glorified himself, and so so he rebelled against God, and God cast him down out of his presence. And now... The devil exercises evil influence in the earth. The Bible in places calls him the prince of the power of the air. It calls him, uh, Jesus even calls him the ruler of the world. 
So Satan has, he, he is not ultimate, but he has great power over people, over the earth, and he, he's terrorizing the world, trying to alienate it further from God. Um, that's what we mean when we talk about the devil. So, so John's point is that anyone who makes a practice of sinning is of that person, by which he doesn't mean people who make a practice of sinning love the devil or worship the devil. He just means that when they sin, when they're doing what they're doing, they're furthering his work because the devil has been sinning from the beginning, he says. So the, the, devil's, the devil's work is to alienate people from God. His work is to spread sin and disease and suffering in the earth. It's to spread lawlessness. The devil wants people to not obey God. He wants them to live their own way and do what he does. It's what he tempted Adam and Eve to do at the beginning. He said, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And they believed him, and humanity fell. That's what Satan is doing. And so anyone who makes a practice of lawlessness is furthering his work. They're, they're playing for his team. They're using his weapons. And, and being of the devil is, is worse than even just being like him in that sense. The Bible talks about how people who... Uh, people, Paul in one place says that people have been captured by him to do his will. He talks in Ephesians 2 about, um, he says that people, before they trust in Christ, that they follow the course of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, so the devil is influencing people who don't know Christ, tempting them to sin, leading them into lawlessness. So I, I hope you're getting a sense for how serious sin is. We can't, we can't really appreciate Jesus until we know how serious sin is. And this takes head on something that we're, we're often told to believe today, which is that, that real freedom, if you really want to be free, you do what you want. Real freedom is, is having no rules. It's doing whatever you please, whatever you enjoy. But the Bible says that that's lawlessness. That, that doing whatever you want, being unconstrained by God, is sin. And, and sin isn't freedom. Sin is slavery. It's being captured by the devil to do his will. Jesus says that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So sin isn't freedom. Sin is slavery. And that's the bad news. But Christianity doesn't stop with the bad news. So the second point we need to see in the text this morning is that the reason Jesus came was to deal with sin. The reason Jesus came was to deal with sin. Look at verse 5. You know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus appeared to take away sins. And this, this is so rich, so don't miss this. this. When he says take away sins, it's the same word that... Uh, John records in his gospel, there's a scene in which John the Baptist, Jesus' cousins, Jesus' cousin, sees Jesus coming to him, and, and John points him out and says to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes away the sins of the world. And so, uh, in, in the religion of the people, God's people at that time, they dealt with their sin through sacrifice, through animal sacrifice. So they knew that they knew that sinning against God demanded a death. There was a death penalty for sinning against God. But God had graciously said to them that if when you sin, you will sacrifice an animal, I'll count that animal's death in place of yours, and you'll be forgiven. 
And in the Passover, which was their big annual feast, the same thing was true. They would, they would slay a lamb for, the, for their sins, for, to remember how God had passed over his people when he, just, when he killed all the firstborn in Egypt. And so when John says, behold the lamb of God, he's saying, here is coming the sacrifice for sins. Here is coming the one who will take away the sins of the world by taking them on himself. By, um, by, by, I, I just get this picture of him sort of gathering up the sins of the world onto himself and then dying in the place of those who sinned so that they wouldn't have to die that death. So Jesus appeared. There's this incredibly, this is a serious problem we have, right, which is sin, which is lawlessness, which is being of the devil. But Jesus appeared to take away sins. And, and I hope we praise him for that and praise him for that later. So he appeared to take away sins. And more than that, he says in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this word destroy, is, it's a really rich word. It, it can mean literal physical destruction. So Jesus uses it when he says in the Gospel of John, destroy this temple, meaning his body. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. But it can also mean to loose, to release, to untie. And so in the Gospels, this word is, is often used. So when Jesus, when he releases the tongue of a mute man, it says he loosed his tongue. And a woman who's crippled, when Jesus healed her, it says that he loosed her from her affliction. And John says elsewhere that Jesus has freed us from our sins, same word, by his blood. And so we get this picture of, of Jesus coming into the world and these people who have been afflicted by the devil, who, who can't speak or who can't move freely or who are, who are enslaved, and Jesus is coming to release them, to loose the works of the devil. All that the devil has come to do, Jesus has come to undo, to untie, to destroy. Satan tells lies. Jesus came to tell the truth. Satan seeks to separate us from God. Jesus has come to reconcile us to God. Satan is a murderer. Jesus gives life. Satan spreads disease and calamity. Jesus brings healing and peace. Satan makes slaves. Jesus sets people free. So Satan's goal, what he wants to see in the world is rebellion, is chaos, is everything alienated from God. But the Bible says that Jesus appeared to reconcile everything to God, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Satan wants everything split, everything far apart from God, and Jesus came to gather everything back into the the right and good relationship that it had from the beginning, the way it was when God created it. So sin is more serious than we think, but Jesus has come to deal with sin. So what happens when a sinner when someone, when someone who's been captured by the devil to do his will, what happens when that person comes to know Jesus? John tells us, third point, those who come to know Jesus are deeply and permanently changed. Those who come to know Jesus are deeply and permanently changed. Look at verse 6 in the text. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now skip down to verse 9. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, so we've seen that sort of the default state of all humanity is sin, is lawlessness. It's how we're born because of our fall from, from perfection at the beginning. But this, this passage describes people who don't keep on sinning, who don't practice sin, who practice righteousness. And, and if we look at the ways he describes these people, we can see how that came to be, how these people came to be righteous, which they weren't from the beginning. So in verse 6, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. These people abide in Christ. And the, the picture you should always get when you hear the word abide in the Bible is the picture of a vine and branches. And it's apparently on this banner over here, which I didn't know before coming. Um, John, John records how Jesus, uh, how Jesus tells his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and my words in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And so this picture is Jesus as this thick, healthy, green vine, and Christians are these little branches coming off the vine. And as long as they're connected to Jesus, his life is flowing into them, and they're bearing fruit. And so Jesus, his love for God flows into them, and then they love God. His, his love for people flows into them, and they love people. His love for justice and righteousness flows into them, and they bear that fruit. They, they come to look like him in all of his righteousness. So these people abide in him. And he says in, in, uh, later on in verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So these people, these people that, that practice righteousness, he says, have seen him and known him. And they were so changed by having seen him and known him that they couldn't keep on sinning. And so he doesn't just mean that they physically saw him. Because um, Judas physically saw him, he physically knew him, but he kept on sinning. But there's a way of seeing him as he truly is, as the glorious Son of God come for our salvation, and knowing him as Savior, knowing him as one who loves our souls. And when we see him and we know him that way, we can't stay the same. How could, how could you stay the same when you know that God's Son willingly came to lay down his life for you. It changes you. And that's what he says here. Whoever has seen him or know him does not keep on sinning. And the most rich way he describes it in this passage, he says that these people have been born of God. And this is where it connects to what we said about God's children. He says in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, so here's the picture he has when he talks about the seed. He says that uh, you can't keep on sinning because God's seed abides in him. So what, so what is a seed? A seed is, is the beginning of a new life, right? A, a plant, even, even a great tree begins with a single seed, with something really small, but it's the beginning of life. Everything it needs is contained in that, and it grows on its own from there. And, and human life even begins with a seed in a way, right? A single cell that divides and becomes more complex and given enough time becomes an eight-pound human being, an eight-pound newborn. So he's saying that, 
that those who come to know God have God's seed in them, the beginning of a new life, something that you can't see but is deep in their heart and given time will, will grow and change and, and transform them on the outside, that someday they'll be as, as new and as different, as righteous on the outside as they are on the inside where the seed is planted. They've been born of God. It's a change so profound that the only way to describe it is to say it's a new birth. It's, it's an entirely new life from what they had before. The old has passed away and the new has come. So these people who are born of God are deeply changed. Um, I don't, and I think some of you can relate to this, I don't know for sure when I became a Christian. I don't know for sure when I, when I was born again. I grew up in a home where I was taught the gospel and in a church where I heard it. And um, I can't remember a time when I, didn't, when I didn't think Jesus came to die on the cross for my sins. But at the end of high school, for me, my life began to change on the outside. I, I began to, to avoid and to hate sin, not because I didn't like feeling guilty, not because I didn't like feeling shame, but because I knew that a holy and good God didn't want it for me, and, and I was able to turn away from deeply ingrained patterns of sin. And so, I guess what, what that illustrates is the seed had been planted. God's seed was abiding in me, and, and it changed me on the outside. And so I don't know for sure when I believed, but I know that by the end of high school, that his life was in me, and that I had been born of God that I was new. So he says that, so John is saying that those who come to know Jesus are deeply changed and they're permanently changed. And this is, so this is sort of, this is sort of the argument John is making. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, uh, if you look at someone and they say they're a Christian and their life isn't different, he says, well, you know, they, the answer here is obvious. They've ceased to be born of God. They, they stopped being born of God. They stopped knowing him. He says, they've never known God. They've never been born of him. If they had, they couldn't keep on sinning. And I think this, this should be really encouraging for us this morning to think that, that if we've really, truly been born of him, the change is going to happen. God is going to make it happen. He's going to make us different. So I need to stress again um, that this doesn't mean that everyone born of God is perfect. I, I feel like I have to keep hitting this because somebody's going to walk away thinking, um, thinking, if I'd been born of God, I'd be better than this. If I'd been born of God, I'd be better than this. So we need to say, it doesn't mean being perfect. John says earlier in the letter, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so he assumes, he assumes that Christians are going to sin and that when they sin, they need to know that Jesus is their advocate and stands ready to forgive and to love and to plead to the Father for them. So let me, let me make one last point um, before, before we look, before we have our opportunity to examine. So John makes an argument here, and he makes it twice. He says, first he says, you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared to take away sins. In him there is no sin, so no one who knows Jesus, no one who is of him, keeps on sinning. And then he says, you know that he appeared to, take, to destroy the works of the devil, so, so no one born of God can keep on doing the works of the devil. So he's saying, he's saying Jesus and the devil are total opposites. Jesus and sin are total opposites, and you can't, 
You can't be born of God. You can't belong to Jesus and keep sinning. You can't, you can't be playing for both sides. So it's, it's like someone saying, I'm, I'm totally loyal to the crown. I'm totally loyal. I love, I love king and country. And at the same time, serving in a rebel army. Or, this is maybe more relevant to where I'm from, you can't, on Sunday afternoon, you can't wear a Chicago Bears jersey and cheer for the Packers. You, you can't be on both sides. If you are born of God, you can't keep sinning. You can't keep doing the works of the devil. Um, and so, he says, he says, let no one deceive you. John is really, he's really concerned about the deception in the church because there are people telling this church, you can know God, you can have this spiritual knowledge of him, and you can live however you want. You can be saved by just knowing the right thing and then not be changed at all. And we still hear this today. We're still told this today, that as long as you have faith, as long as you believe, you can live however you want, and God will forgive you. And that's deception. It's a lie. It's not true. Everyone born of God is changed deeply and permanently. Which is why I said that the message of the sermon is, the children of God share their Father's righteousness. They're changed deeply and permanently, and they can't go back to the way it was before. So, finally, we have an opportunity to examine. The way to know if you become God's child is the practice of righteousness. That's the test. This passage is kind of a paternity test. It's a way to know who your spiritual father is. Are you born of God like God, becoming transformed into God's image, or are you still, um, as people are before they know Jesus, in a way that's really hard to hear, but John says, of the devil, being captured by him, doing his works. And the test is, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So that's the test. Do you live righteously, not perfectly, but righteously? Do you keep God's commands? Do you keep God's commands? Do you love your brother? Do you imitate Jesus? He says earlier in the book, by this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So not not are you perfect, but are you walking in the way in which Jesus walked? We need to ask. We need to ask. It's loving to ask. We want to know for sure. So how how are you doing? And I'm asking myself this too. How are you doing at keeping the commands of God? Jesus says, take care. So these are some examples. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So how are you doing at taking care and watching for covetousness? He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So how are you doing? He says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. How are you doing? I know you're not perfect. God knows you're not perfect. Nobody is. He says, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So if if you were to say, oh, I'm doing perfect, I would say, that's, that's a problem. 
Um, I'm not doing perfect. Ryan's not doing perfect. We all have sin. But are you becoming, maybe slowly, but are you becoming more righteous? Are you different than you were five years ago? Are you different than you were a year ago? Is God at work? What would your spouse say? What would your friends say? Are you, are you asking God to change you, or, or are you just are you drifting? My, one of my pastors in Wisconsin is fond of saying that in the Bible, drift is always away. It's always away. You, you never drift into anything worth having. You don't drift into godliness. You don't drift into a good marriage. You don't drift into good parenting. Drift is always away. So, so are you growing or are you drifting? So I'm going to wrap this up. Um, by way of conclusion, I want to suggest two wrong ways to respond to this sermon and one right way, the way that God wants us to respond. So the first wrong way to respond to the sermon is just to shrug it off. Just to, to think, it, it can't really be as bad as all that. It can't, you know, of the devil, that's a little bit over the top. Um, don't, don't turn your back on God's word. It would be wrong to think, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying very hard to be holy. Uh, my life does not look much like Jesus, but I know that God will forgive me. I, I know that he will. I know that God will forgive me. I know that I'm born again. I'm just kind of in a season, you know, where uh, in the future, when I have more time, I'm not so busy, I'll grow, it'll be different, it'll change. That would be a mistake. God is saying, if you're born of God, if you're God's child, your life is going to change. So, so don't, don't shrug it off. Listen to what God is saying. So the first wrong way to, to listen to the sermon is to shrug it off. The second wrong way to respond is to despair. It would be wrong to despair. I, know, I think some of you may hear this and, and think, I want to be holy. I want to change. I'm just, I, just, I feel like I'm so far short. I'm, just, I'm not coming even close to what God wants for me. Um, I, to think, to think uh, I, I'll never be righteous enough, I'll never feel good enough about how I'm doing to know for sure that I'm a Christian. And, and to feel that, I, I know how that feels. It feels like, like a pit opens up under your heart and it just falls through to think that if the way to know if I'm a Christian is righteousness, I'm so aware of my sin I could never be sure that I'm a believer. And you just despair. And I don't, I don't think that, that that's what God wants anyone to feel coming out of the sermon. Um, I want to remind you, and this is really good news, and I, I hope if you haven't heard anything before, you hear this. You are not accepted by God because of your performance. You are not accepted by God because of your active righteousness. No one can be. Anyone who's accepted by God, is accepted because of Jesus' righteousness, because of what Jesus has done in laying down his life on the cross. You will never be so good as to deserve God's acceptance, and, and you shouldn't hold that over your head. We're not looking for perfection when we ask if there's righteousness. We're just looking, we're looking for signs of life. We're looking for, is, is God at work in here? Have I been born again? Is his seed abiding in me? Am I just a little different? If you desire to be holy and you're seeing change, even change, you feel like this change is so small that I'd have to live to be a million years old 
to be where I want to be. If you're seeing change, I don't think God, you, you have no reason to despair. You have great reason to rejoice because if you're changing, God is at work in you. So shrugging it off is wrong. Despair is wrong. The right way to respond, I think, for anyone, if you're not a Christian, if you think you're a Christian and you're not sure, if you know for sure, and I, I, hope, I hope there are lots of people in this room who know for sure that they're a Christian, the right way to respond to the sermon is to look to Jesus, to look to him. So if you're not a Christian, I don't want you to con- get confused this morning and think, okay, well, I'm not a Christian. I think I'd like to be. And the way to do that is to just work really hard at being righteous. I've got to keep God's commands. No, you shouldn't walk away thinking, I just got to have to, I have to try harder. I have to do more. No, you have to look to Jesus who died for all those who are separated and are far off from God. The Bible is really clear about how someone becomes a child of God. This is about how to know if you have become a child of God. But the Bible says, this is the beginning of John's gospel, he says, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you don't become a child of God by living a righteous life. You become a child of God by receiving Jesus as he is, by believing in his name. And then righteousness flows out from what has already happened in your heart. So, if you're not a Christian, don't just try harder. Look to Jesus. And if you think you're a Christian, but you're not sure, don't keep, and this is, this is a temptation to me, don't keep just taking your spiritual pulse and asking, well, am I good enough yet? Do, am I righteous enough yet? Do I, do I feel like I'm righteous enough that now I can be sure I'm a Christian? Don't just keep asking that question. Look to Jesus, who secures your acceptance with God. Trust in him. Study him. Walk with him. If you're not sure you're a Christian, don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. And if you know you're a Christian, if you know you're a Christian, that does not mean you've outgrown your need to look to Jesus. John says in chapter 3, verse 3, which we looked at earlier, everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. So he's, he's talking about, when he says hope in Jesus, it means you're looking ahead to his coming. You're longing for him to come and make the world perfect. You're, you're, you're looking to his coming. And as you do, as you look at him, you purify yourself as he is pure. And Paul says in a place, um, in one of his letters, he says, we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so, so the growth comes not by just really just trying harder, just summing up your energy. The change comes by beholding Jesus as he is in his beauty, in his holiness, in his righteousness. And then as you look to him, you're changed from one degree of glory to another. So even for believers, the right way to respond to the sermon is to look to Jesus. So let's, let's look to him now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we give you great thanks. We give you great thanks for coming into the world to take away sins, for coming into the world to destroy the works of the devil. We thank you that that as we receive you, as you are, 
that we are changed, that we're born of God, that we become God's children. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you long for us to be reconnected to your Father in heaven. I pray that you would help us to look to you, that we would behold you as you are, as a Savior, and we would trust you, we would behold you as you are in, in one who changes us from glory to glory, and that we would give ourselves entirely to you, that we would walk with you and belong to you. Help us to think rightly about ourselves. Help us, help us to think rightly about whether we have truly come to know you. And God, for anyone who hasn't, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would be born of God, that God's seed would abide in them, and that they would bear much fruit to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.